Good morning, everybody. Good to see you here today. Got some old faces, new faces, super old faces. Why don't we take some time to greet each other? This might be the last time we get to say hi. So let's greet each other, say hello, say glad you're here. For those of you that are joining us online, we're so happy that you could join us here today. Uh, before we get into our scripture reading, I just want to uh, recognize that we're very blessed to have someone doing AV. <laughs> so we got a whole bunch of new upgrades this past week, and so it's been a pain figuring it out. But uh, thankfully, Sarah and uh, also with the help of Alice have been uh, kind of grinding through it. So we may have some technical difficulties, but please uh, recognize them for the great service they're doing. It's really a thankless job. Uh, because you don't see them, right? You only see Tommy and, and June and myself. So uh, let's keep them in our prayers that God continues to develop their gifts. Why don't we humble our hearts at this time before we receive God's words. Let's close our eyes. Let's bow down our hearts. And let's get ready to receive God's word for us today. Let us pray. For illumination god we thank you for the word you give to us and lord sometimes it feels like we can't see you sometimes it feels like we can't hear you but god because of the word your word that is powerful and alive and moving today we could hold sure of the promises that you have made and so lord as we receive your ancient words we pray that you make us humble before you we want to make ourselves low before you so that we have a proper attitude and heart of worship. Lord, be with us. May the Spirit be with us in our hearing and our understanding. And may we be transformed today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's scripture reading comes from the Acts of the Apostles. We're continuing on with our series on Acts. So last week, we actually did our Bible study on Acts 7. It's going to be a continuation of that. Uh, Acts 8 is long too, so I encourage you to go home and read it. But we're just going to look at the first five verses today. You can follow along with the screen. I'm reading from the NIV. This is Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. And Saul approved of their killing of him. This is Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. This is the word of God for us today. Thanks be to God. Just until several years ago, when I was dating Alice still, we would talk about things like death and how we might want to die. And even we talked about how old we want to be when we die. And then I remember saying to her, when I was much younger and a lot less afraid, I said, you know what, I think it'd be cool to be martyred. Not murdered, martyred. Two different words. Martyr is dying for Christ. And you read stories of people like Stephen in scripture, and you hear about tradition of the apostles and how they were martyred. And it's kind of cool, right? Like to not renounce Christ even unto death and dying, glorifying God. But I remember attending an Easter service Sunday, I think it was two years ago when I was not here yet. And I came home to find that social media had exploded. What had happened was during Easter service, there was an explosion in churches in Sri Lanka. Do you guys remember that? That was crazy. In a short span, just like boom, 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 there were like six explosions and they targeted churches and hotels. And it was insane. Children, women, and men were injured. Five, approximately 500 were injured during those bombings. 
And at first they reported 359 dead. But when they actually cross-examined with uh, DNA samples, they confirmed that were, there were only 269 deaths. So what had happened was there, there was such a massacre that the corpses were everywhere and it just looked like a hundred more people had died. And so imagine the brutality of the response teams that's responding to situations like these. On the Lord's day, on the day of the Lord's resurrection. And I was like, do I still want to be martyred? Later that day, or later that year, actually, very, a few days after Christmas, there was another incident, another social media frenzy when a video that was uploaded, claimed to have been uploaded by ISIS, they were claiming to have beheaded 11 Christians in Nigeria the day, or a couple of days after, we commemorate the birth of Christ. And so these incidents are believed to coincide with major calendar days. Our high holidays, such as Easter, the resurrection, and the birth of Christ, Christmas, to spread fear among people who are giving their lives to Jesus. A lot of people have died. In 2019, something like 3,000 people have been martyred world. Why? And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, maybe I want to live a full and long life. Maybe I don't want to be martyred anymore. Maybe dying of old age is starting to sound good. I don't know if I grew older and became more fearful or if the reality of Christian persecution really set in my heart. When we read through encouragements in scripture, especially the New Testament, for Christians who are being persecuted, Perhaps we have a tendency to breeze by because we're like, we're not being persecuted in North America. This is not too applicable for us. It has no bearing in our lives. But for many brothers and sisters around the world today, in the 21st century, in places like North Korea and China and Afghanistan, in Yemen, India, Central Africa, there are brothers and sisters that are being persecuted simply because they are people of faith. And so for these people that are reading the epistles and reading Acts, what's happening in Scripture, the persecution might feel a lot more real to them. And so what we have to do is we have to imagine a little bit what it might be like for us to be persecuted. Through chapter 7, which is actually the chapter we studied during Friday for Bible study, we read about Stephen who died. So Stephen is, is not one of the apostles, but he was actually one of the seven deacons that were appointed to serve the widows and the poor and the needy in the church. And Stephen was full of the Spirit, and he was preaching truth to the Sanhedrin, which is like the officials, the Jewish officials. And he explains a historic rejection of Israel of God and Israel's total failure to understand what it means to be in a relationship with God. And so the people of the Sanhedrin who hear this get so mad and these are grown men and we kind of laughed about it, but they block their ears and they, they just yell out, la, 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 I can't hear you, I can't hear you. And they drag him off and they stone Stephen to death. And after Stephen dies, what's happening is our reading right now unfolds a huge persecution unfolds in the church. A huge persecution. We read that Saul began to destroy the church. And destroying is actually a very weak interpretive word. I don't know why they chose the word destroy. Destroy is the word you use when you destroy someone else's battleship. But the Greek word that is used here is more relevant to words or meanings such as ravage, like Paul, or sorry, Saul ravaged the church or Saul made havoc of the church. And so the underlying meaning, if you imagine, is like this crazy wild boar that is destroying a vineyard. It's just wrecking this vineyard. It's turning things over. This boar is pushing things aside, completely destroying the order of things. And we read that Paul goes from house to house. He knocks on the door. And if he sees a Christian, he'll drag them out, men and women alike. This is Nazi stuff. This is quite literally what the German officials did during the reign of Nazi. They would ravage through homes looking for Jews and hiding and put them in camps. 
This is not just a social shunning. This is not just a social thing, but this is an act of utter hatred that is demonstrated towards the people of Jesus. To the Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, to force and coerce them and to stop believing what they're believing. But if they can't change their minds to at least make an example out of them so that other people who see what they're doing to Christians would say, I don't want that to happen to me, so I'm not going to follow Christ anymore. Dying of old age is starting to sound a lot better now, doesn't it? I don't want to be persecuted anymore. I take that back, Alice. I don't want to be martyred. In the midst of this crazy persecution, the Christians are scattered from Jerusalem. That's what we read in Scripture. Except for the apostles, they remain because they're headquartered in Jerusalem. But all the believers, we read about 5,000 men, so it's got to be close to 10,000 people, are scattered. Read verse 4 with me. Verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. We see here the world. The world is so hell-bent on opposing people of Christ. They're going to keep opposing Christ. But what happens is the Sanhedrin and the world that doesn't want the word of Christ to spread to, 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 be, to be spread, find themselves in this frustration because the reality is there's a strange connection. There is a strange connection between persecution and it is inherently connected with faith. The, the Sanhedrin and Saul are persecuting the church in hopes of either completely dismantling the church or deterring others from following the ways of the church, but the Holy Spirit can't be stopped in this chapter. It's like quicksand. The more you try to move, the faster you sink. And you know why? If we look at John 7, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. He's forewarning them of the persecution that's about to come. Jesus says this, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. This is what Jesus is saying. Because I testify that its works are evil. And so when our brothers and sisters, when we are being persecuted for being Christians, it may seem as if they're hating us, but Jesus makes it clear that they're not hating us, but rather they're hating him who saved us. In just the next chapter, spoiler alert for those who are going to be doing Bible study, Saul is going to be converted. It's crazy. Jesus appears before Saul and somehow turns the greatest persecutor of the church who is filled with malice, pride, and anger and converts him miraculously to the greatest evangelist of, the, of Christ who becomes full of humility instead. But when Jesus appears before Saul, Jesus doesn't say to Saul, 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 why do you persecute my church? But what does he say? He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When we're being persecuted, Jesus reminds us it's not us, but it's Jesus who's being persecuted. When the world persecutes us, when the world tries to squelch us from preaching this gospel, when the world throws insults at us, insulting our intelligence and rationale and common sense, and when the world flares their nostrils in anger at us, we need to remember that it's not us there persecuting, but it's Jesus, the very person, the very being for whom the universe came to be, through whom the universe came to be, the very being who pre-existed creation and the one that will continue to persist after creation is gone. And as such, it's not us who fights our persecution because we're not being persecuted, but it is God who fights the persecution of the church because it is Jesus who's being persecuted. This is huge encouragement for us. Remember this, this is gonna be the theme of the message today. There is a Korean anecdote that I heard not too long ago. And that's the thing about anecdotes, you don't know if it's completely true, but I'm sure there's some truths to it, right? If you don't know, Korean hunting dogs are not only fiercely vicious, they're not only fiercely territorial, 
But these Korean hunting dogs, whether South Korean Jindo or North Korean Pungsan dogs, they're fiercely loyal. They're fiercely loyal. What they'll do, and this is what the anecdote is about, what they'll do is they'll go ahead of their master, who's a hunter, and will navigate the woods. And when this dog, who's probably around 100 pounds, comes face to face with an Asian black bear that weighs like 10 times more than the dog, the dog doesn't flee. The dog stands his ground. Why? Because the dog trusts that the master is right behind him. The dog trusts that the hunter is immediately behind him, following him, and that it is the hunter that is holding the big guns, literally. The church is being oppressed and persecuted, but the church cannot be stopped. The preaching of the gospel persists even though we think that persecution is too much because it's not us who's working, but it is God that is working. And because God is working, the preaching of the gospel won't stop. And so we have this paradox here where no matter what happens, the gospel is going to be spread. You know what's crazier? You know what's absolutely wild about the language that Luke uses here? The language that Luke uses to describe the situation here reminds us of two events in history. I don't know if you're ready for this. This is too wild. Get ready. Who remembers the incident at the Tower of Babel? Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Well, the thematic theme that carries throughout this narrative the Tower of Babel, is connected to Genesis 1.28, when God simultaneously, after creating human, blesses them and commands them, who were created in the triune image of God, to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. That's God's blessing and instruction to humanity to go and fill the earth, to be scattered. God wanted humanity to fill the earth so that these many images of God would fill the earth. In other words, so that there would be no corner on earth where image of God is absent. But what do people do? Genesis 11. What do they do? They say, no, no, thank you, God. We're not going to do that. We're going to consolidate our power. We're going to build up and we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to make a name for ourselves. So God gives them many languages, confusing them, and they naturally scatter because they can't work together. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? The day of the Pentecost, you have this violent wind, which is the Holy Spirit, just coming in on his people in form of this violent wind and tongues of fire. And the Spirit gives the believers, all 120 of them, unique languages that they have not learned before. But this is not a curse. This is not a curse. It's actually a great reversal of the Tower of Babel for the sake of the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom. The Christians we read today are scattered because of this persecution. But they know that their God is behind them. So they do not let anything in the world, including persecution, make them renounce Christ. Because even while they're being scattered... They are spreading and preaching the word of God and good news everywhere. What we see here is something that the evil one meant for evil. Persecution, oppression, coercion, violence. It has the exact opposite side effect of what one might expect. There is such a strange and peculiar connection between persecution and the growth and the spread of the gospel. Persecution actually acts in our reading today as a catalyst that realizes the spreading of God's will. So just like in Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, in Acts 8, the disciples are scattered and the gospel is disseminated even outside Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Sanhedrin might be thinking, they might be thinking, if we didn't persecute those Christians, then maybe we could have contained the gospel in Jerusalem. But with this persecution, it spread 
And this brings us to Luke's second connection, which is just as wild as the first. Where do the scattering Christians find themselves? We read that in scripture today. Where do they find themselves? In Judea and Samaria, right? Here we see the reflection of the commission of Jesus being realized, not necessarily by the church's plan, but by events that go beyond the believer's control and even their comfort level. What did Jesus say in Acts 1.8? Let's look it up real quick. Acts 1.8. When we first started studying Acts, we said that Acts 1.8 was going to be this thematic overture. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So whether the Jews like it or not, whether the church likes it or not, whether you and I like it or not, God's sovereignty persists. God's will persists. And God's will is done. That's what this chapter is about. That no matter who or what tries to stop the advancement of the church, they might just end up catalyzing it. I think we have to spend some time unpacking persecution. And I think we have to spend some time adjusting our posture towards persecution. Because, you know, we might feel like we're so far removed from persecution that persecution is totally irrelevant to us. Because we're so blessed to have this thing called religious freedom in Canada, right? This is how I might define persecution. Per persecution is unwarranted hostility or unwarranted animosity that one has towards another person solely based on cultural, religious, or political views. I think that's what persecution is. So maybe you didn't do anything wrong to your neighbor, but just for holding a certain position, your neighbor might have something against you. It leaves you open for persecution by someone who hates and detests that position. And so at the end of the day, persecution is simply when we become objects of hostility or animosity because of our faith in Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, that's what perse persecution comes down to. When humans face conflict, and not just humans, but any really developed organisms that have a brain, when they're met with this overwhelming stimulus that they can't cope with, naturally, they're one of three psychological responses. Do you guys know? We've, this has become a cliche, cliche at this point. The natural inclination when we are met with this overwhelming stimulus is either fight, right, or flight, or freeze. We either fight or flight or freeze when we're met with this overwhelming opposition that we cannot overcome. Our amygdala, which is a tiny little pea-sized portion of our brain, our amygdala, it basically hijacks our brain and there is a natural, responsive, instinctive, psychological response. It's a snap decision, snap reaction based on our instincts and our nature. And the amygdala, this little pea-sized thing, can override our whole rational thinking and thought process as we enter into this survival mode. And we're going to be looking at that a little bit. It's super interesting. But what's even more interesting is that scripture actually captures the human condition of flight, fight, or freeze. We're going to look at some examples. We're going to stay within Luke and Acts, and this is going to help us see how we face persecution. I'm going to start with flight, running away. I'm going to start with flight because I imagine it is the most instinctive for us. It's probably our most impulsive decision when there's something we just run away when we are confronted with some kind of hostility because of our faith, because of the truth of the transformative power of the gospel and the sure grace we experience, many of us, I think, will choose flight. What the disciples are doing in our scripture reading today, that's not flight. 
they're being scattered. They're not running away from their faith. We have to, we have to know that. They're not being dumb. If someone says, hey, I'm going to kill you, and you say, okay, come kill me. That's not an issue of fight or flight. That is just a lack of common sense. You've got to move away from conflict, right? But what the position of flight might look like is out of fear, fleeing from the position that we are of Christ altogether. In other words, we don't face the conflict that arises from us being faithful Christians, but we avoid and flee the situation altogether by denying that we have anything to do with Christ. One of the most common and simplest responses in the face of persecution. Let's look at Luke 22. Let's observe the end of Luke 22. And we're staying within Luke and Acts because Luke and Acts were written by the same author. And so we have a good idea of what they're trying to say. Jesus is arrested in Luke 22. He's betrayed by Judas. In the other gospel accounts, we actually read that the disciples flee the scene. They just scatter. They're like, I can't be here anymore. I'm going to die. But the camera zooms in on Peter who is following Jesus from a distance, and people recognize Peter's dialect and figure. And so they say to Peter, hey, weren't you with Jesus? I swear I saw you with Jesus. And he says, woman, I don't know him. You're crazy. You're out of your mind. Another man comes and says, you are one of them, aren't you? I swear I've seen you with Jesus. And he says, man, you're wild. You don't know what you're talking about. Certainly, someone else says, he is one of them. I saw him with Jesus. I've seen them together. And in the Matthian account, it actually describes Peter cursing at them and swearing an oath saying, I swear to God, I don't know that man. It's a total abandonment of our covenant with Christ. And it is a total failure to recognize that God is behind us. In fleeing from our faith, we surrender Jesus. We surrender Jesus in fleeing from our faith. The second response is freeze. It's like when an animal plays dead or a deer is frozen in the headlights. Or it's like when we're driving and a squirrel comes on the road and looks at us and we lock eye contact, but the squirrel stays. So I don't know if I have to swerve to the left or the right. That's freeze. They cannot advance forward to fight, nor can they retreat to run away, to flee. And what this might look like is fence-sitting, right? The political leaders do this best, fence-sitting, don't they? We see Gamaliel in Acts 5, and we talked about this. Gamaliel, if you remember, he's like the Stephen Hawking of Pharisees. He's actually Saul's mentor and teacher, Gamaliel. The Sanhedrin arrested Peter and John for preaching the gospel. This is Acts 5. And Gamaliel knows that he cannot deny what they've seen because the signs and miracles are so clearly there. So Gamaliel knows that this is an act of God. But at the same time, he can't acknowledge that what they're doing is an act of God. Otherwise, he may be the object of persecution. And so he sits on the fence and he says, hey, leave them alone. And they say, what? Why? And he doesn't know, uh, maybe because if they're of human origin, they'll fail like what the other guys did. But if they're a God, there's no way that we can stop them. Gamaliel, even though he fears God, he demonstrates that he fears people more than God. And so he's frozen. He can't make a decision to fight or to flight. It's a wait and see kind of attitude. There's someone else, Pontius Pilate, right? And actually Luke strongly emphasizes the innocence of Jesus because Pontius Pilate says three times, I see no basis for a charge against this man. So Pontius Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, but when he says that he's going to release him, the Jewish crowds go nuts. They scream and yell, shout and make a fuss. And so because Pilate is afraid of the crowd, he surrenders Jesus. See, we sit on the fence and we become super ambiguous when we know that we should fear God. But for some reason, we fear the people more than we fear God. That is what flight or that is what freeze might look like. 
And the last response in the face of persecution is what's left? Fighting, right? Fighting. Listen, all you fighters. I know the fighters that are here. Listen, you fight. We're going to look at Luke 22 again. 49, verse 49 to 51. If you don't have your scriptures open, that's okay. I'm going to read it for us. When Jesus' followers saw, that's the disciples, what was going to happen, so this is after Judas had, had uh, betrayed Jesus and they were coming to arrest Jesus, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them, who we know is Peter, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. The disciples who were trying to protect Jesus, and in turn protect themselves, because that's what, that's what they're really concerned about, protecting themselves, they drew their swords. And we have to ask, why are you even drawing your sword? You don't know how to use a sword. When you strike someone with a sword, and I know this because my brother did kendo, and this is at least in, in the Asian culture, you don't go for someone's ear. And kendo, you either go for the head or the waist or the wrist or the chest. No one aims for the ear. And what this means is that what Peter was doing was either here, let me place my sword at your ear so you know that I'm the real deal and you can't mess with me. Or Peter went for the head, but he missed because he's a terrible swordsman. That's what happens when you go on wielding power that you can't use. Peter lobs off an ear. Poor Malchus. Huh? But Jesus answered, no more of this. Jesus said, no more of this. And he restores the man's ear to undo Peter's exercise of power. Jesus is about restoring brokenness. Jesus is not in the business of inflicting brokenness. Conflict occurs when one party is hostile to another and the party refuses to give in and so retaliates. That's when conflict occurs. They fight back. They retaliate. They exercise violence to counter violence. They exercise oppression to counter oppression. The church, upon persecution, could have been like the Maccabees and resisted and taken up arms and revolted, but that's not what Jesus is about. Jesus is very clear on his stance of retaliation. He says, don't do it. He says, don't do it. In fact, he challenges us to go a step further and to love and pray for our enemies. So Jesus' instruction for us to love our enemies is not unconditional when they're not attacking us, but despite being attacked in the midst of being persecuted, we're to love them back. I think there's a reason why Jesus came in humility rather than with power and guns blazing. If you think about it, the most effective way, the most optimal way for Jesus to convince the world that he is who he says he is, is to come wielding might, right? If he showed up with 300 legions of angels, everyone would know that he's Messiah. So why didn't he just do that? But there's a real problem with that. With a demonstration of power, there would be no true and genuine faith. There would be no sincere and authentic repentance. If Jesus came with such unbelievable power, such divine authority, and if Jesus instructed you to repent and to follow him and do everything he says, flexing his almighty strength, you would but not because you had a choice. But you would because you would be compelled and coerced by his power. And unless we repent and turn to God with humility, making ourselves low out of our own will and submission, it's not a genuine relationship. In a way, we'd be strong-armed into doing whatever Jesus would tell us to do out of fear that something bad might come our way. Jesus is not about inflicting brokenness. Jesus is about restoring brokenness. See, Jesus is not about inflicting brokenness, so he doesn't care for oppression. Jesus does not care for coercion. Jesus is not about threatening you to follow him or else dangling salvation in your face. But some of us, out of fear of being dominated, out of fear of being persecuted, we might flex our own little guns to counter-dominate preemptively so that we might prevent ourselves 
from being dominated. Even when we are degraded and humiliated and opposed, we do not use violence and power into bringing the other into submission, but rather Jesus challenges us to prefer suffering. Jesus challenges us to prefer persecution, to prefer being wronged in light of Christian love. That's radical, and it makes no worldly, rational sense. Conflict occurs when one party is hostile to another and the other party retaliates. But persecution happens when one party is unable or unwilling to retaliate and to contest their freedom and dignity. So we're caught in this situation, right, as followers of Jesus. We're caught in this situation, and the people, the early believers certainly are caught in this situation. In the face of hostility and animosity, on one hand, they have a world that is insisting on being violent towards them, of being angry and hostile towards them. They're insisting on it. But on the other hand, they have Jesus who says, don't fight back. They, says, they have Jesus who says, don't flee. And they have Jesus who says, don't freeze. So what are we supposed to do as Christians if we can't fight back or if we can't run away or if we can't freeze? When Jesus was persecuted and when his believers were persecuted in Acts, we see that they neither fight, nor flight, nor freeze up. Rather, we see a strange and peculiar preference to suffer. We see a strange and peculiar preference to be the objects of ridicule, to be the objects of being outcast and to persecution and to oppression and to marginalization choosing to love the enemy rather than inflicting vengeance on the enemy. If we are to conform to the image of Christ, we should learn how Christ was oppressed and persecuted. For those of you that love Acts, we're so, I'm so sorry, we're going to have to skip Simon Magus. It's a very cool story, but we're going to skip that. Maybe we'll see it for a Bible study. We're also going to be skipping the majority of eunuch, Philip preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch. But in the latter half of chapter 8, Philip, who was one of the seven deacons, so Philip and, and Stephen, remember, they're not apostles, they're deacons, they're everyday servants of Christ. These are the ones that are perpetuating the gospel, by the way. It's not the big spiritual preachers but it's the everyday servants of Christ. That's one thing to remember. But anyways, Philip is led by the Spirit, and he meets an Ethiopian eunuch who is reading Isaiah 53. We're not going to go too much into it, but what the eunuch was reading is quite interesting for the focus of our sermon. And this is what the prophecy reads. If you want to follow along, it's chapter 8, verses 32 and 33. He, that is Jesus, was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he, that's Jesus, did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And we know that this was in his salvific work on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the judge of the living and the dead should have all the right to wield and exercise any and all powers of the universe. But Jesus preferred to suffer. Jesus preferred to be silently dominated. Jesus preferred to give up his right to justice than to become one who inflicts suffering himself. Let's take a moment to remember how Stephen died, the first martyr. He asked God, as he was dying, to forgive those that were killing him. He literally prayed for his enemies, just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. In Stephen's suffering, he was able to resemble Christ. Stephen turned away from a vindictive posture, from a posture of vengeance, 
and instead of inflicting penalty on those who were persecuting him, just like Jesus, he preferred to suffer the wrong in light of perfect love. And the loving behavior and response to being wronged by someone is to, as Jesus says, turn the other cheek, to hand over your coat, and to walk the extra mile. We're very blessed in Canada that we're not openly persecuted for our faith, at least not violently and physically. But let me tell you, social persecution can be very real. There is a stigma out there that describes Christians as having a lower IQ. I don't know if you've seen those or not. Sometimes people get infuriated. Sometimes I get infuriated, but then I realize that I'm not that smart in the first place, so it's okay. Being less intelligent because you're Christian, because you're believing in these fairy tales. Do we fight? Or do we flee? Or do we freeze? There is a stigma out there that describes Christians as being narrow-minded, stubborn, and unwilling to work with others, so we get a lot of hate and a lot of flack. Do we fight? Or do we flee? Or do we freeze? These stigmas actually come together and affect even our work and schooling opportunities. You think it doesn't, but it does. Let me tell you a story. When I was working at a web development firm, I overheard my boss arguing with a Muslim. They're both so big-headed. And my boss was saying that Christians and Muslims are so stupid for what they believe in. And they're even worse for trying to get others to join their religion. In moments like that, when I'm overhearing, an earshot away. You think I'm going to say I'm a Christian? Would you like to hear about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Or am I going to shut up, turn the other way, and just do my work? Do we fight, or do we flee, or do we freeze? Or, as Jesus instructed his believers, in the face of persecution, do we prefer to suffer silently in light of our love for our enemy and pray for them that they might one day encounter God and know what all this is about? Some of us might be so tempted to say, well, I don't get persecuted in my work. I don't get persecuted in my school. So this isn't applicable to me. Well, here's a second question for us. If we never find ourselves to be an object of persecution, I wonder if we are doing a good of a job of representing Christ in the world to our schools and workplaces and social circles. Because if they don't know you're Christians, there's nothing to persecute. Let me get this straight. I don't think God wants us to be oppressed. I don't think he put us in this world to make us suffer and to make us be persecuted. I mean, Exodus is exactly the opposite of that, right? God is practically taking care of a bunch of refugees who were slaves their whole lives and is engaging in a relationship with them, is freeing them from oppression and slavery. I don't think that our lesson today is suggesting that Christians must be persecuted. I don't think the text is pointing to any kind of teaching that we should seek out and pursue persecution, that it is good for us to be persecuted, and that we should get out of our way to find ourselves in the crosshair of oppression and persecution because that's what the people, the believers in Acts did. We shouldn't be looking for it. But because we are Christians, because we are of Jesus and not of the world, and because the natural inclination of the world is to oppose Christ, we should expect persecution. And when persecution does find us, we don't go looking for persecution, but when persecution does find us, when hostility because of our faith comes our way, we pray to the Spirit and say, may we deny ourselves and by denying ourselves quite literally mean denying our psychological impulses to fight or flee or to freeze what jesus is asking for us to do when others are unjustly hostile towards us to not retaliate but to prefer to put ourselves in the place of persecution if 
it happens. We are to love our, animal, our enemies so tremendously. We are to love our animal <laughs> enemies. I keep on thinking of the word animosity. Enemies so incredibly that we show mercy and grace and prefer suffering than becoming oppressors ourselves. Does this seem impossible? Maybe. Maybe. We're going to have another series of things that the Bible never said. One thing you might see on Instagram once a week, at least if you're tagged in a lot of Christian stuff, is someone posting a picture that's working out and there's Philippians 4.13 on there, right? I can do all things through him who give me strength. That's not what Paul meant. The Bible never said it in that way. It is in the context of suffering. When Paul writes that to the Philippians, he's saying, because Jesus has got my back, because God has my back, I can do all things to him who gives me strength, which is to endure suffering and to endure persecution and not fight back because I know that it is not me who they're persecuting, but it is Jesus who they're persecuting and Jesus has got me. That's wild. Don't misuse that phrase. It's not about working out. It's not about losing weight. It's not about getting that job. It's about suffering. It's about suffering. We can do all things. We can suffer and we can be persecuted so long as God gives us strength. Christians should not instigate. Paul tells us, this is Paul, the same Saul that's actually persecuting the church. Paul tells us that we should do the best we can to live a quiet life and to maintain peace. This is the posture of Paul, who is Saul of Tarsus, who's actually going around dragging Christians out of homes. God doesn't want us to be persecuted, but if we must suffer, it must be for the sake of the gospel. That's the only thing that is worth being persecuted for, and all the things that the gospel preaches. Don't go taking a wildly unpopular socio-political view and then come to me complaining that you're the target of these keyboard warriors. Because when Jesus suffered, it was so that we might be reconciled to God. When the early church suffered, it was so that Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world might be reconciled to God. See, this is where things get sad. When the church... When the body of Christ refuses to know humility, and when she deliberately disobeys Jesus, and when she feels like it's time for her to wield some power, swing the sword around and lob off some ears. Histor historically, the church totally misunderstood the word of God, and because they themselves didn't want to be oppressed by people around them, the church preemptively oppressed others and it turned into this monstrous fake frankenstein perverted version of the word of god the great theologian harvey dent from batman the dark knight seems to have inspired the sanhedrin with this quote are you ready you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain or maybe in light of acts we can say you either die persecuted or you live long enough to become the persecutor. The Jews were historically oppressed and persecuted, but when they got a taste of power, they think, I don't want to be persecuted no more. And so they start persecuting others. The church, who was historically oppressed and persecuted, as we read in Acts, when they taste power, the exact same thing. They say, I don't want to be persecuted no more. And so they begin to persecute others. We began to persecute others. These, we, are supposed to be followers of Christ. But when we truly encounter Christ, when we truly experience Jesus, the opposite seems to happen. Before Saul met Jesus, he was a dominator. He was an oppressor. He pushed 
forward, eliminating everyone who thought differently. His posture was a posture of pride. But after Saul met Jesus, he became dominated. He became oppressed. And he became the one who was pushed back. What happened? Saul met Jesus. And Saul took on humility. Pride is what makes us wield power. But humility is what makes us say, I know you don't like me. Maybe there's not much to like in the first place. So you're persecuting me, but man, I still love you. This is so perfectly exemplified in how Jesus died. And this is so perfectly exemplified in how Stephen died. And this is so perfectly exemplified in our text today when the church suffered silently, scattered from their homes. We should also follow the example of Jesus, the one who suffered silently as people who would rather prefer to be suffering, as people that would rather prefer to be persecuted, if it means that we can show love to our enemies so that one day they themselves can be reconciled to God. Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, once said this. He said, the church exists primarily for the sake of those who are still outside of it. That means all the other organizations in the world are concerned about building themselves up, but the church should be concerned about reaching those outside of the church. But what we see in Acts is that the early church existed for the sake of those who were persecuting them, and that's wild. Even in the midst of violence and hostility, they didn't fight back. They didn't flee. They didn't freeze up in fear, but what they chose to do was to prefer persecution if it mean that they could continue preaching the truth and gospel of Christ to the world. See, knowing Jesus is not about power. It's about surrendering that power. And in the same way, when we suffer, we do so so that the Spirit may work powerfully within our suffering, reconciling those who are persecuting God. Let us be reminded today that we are not alone, nor is it us that preaches the gospel, but it is the one who stands strong behind us. Let us pray and give glory to God. God, we thank you for the word you've given to us today. And Lord, it might be tough for us to put ourselves in the shoes of those that are being persecuted, our beloved brothers and sisters who are giving up their lives, their freedom, their dignity, their humanity, just so that they can know you. So help us to keep them in our prayers. But Lord, in our own lives, when we have a choice, upon being socially persecuted to fight back or to abandon Christ or to freeze up in fear and ambiguity. We pray, Lord, that you give us a strength and courage, as it is said in Philippians 4, to have strength to deny ourselves and to carry the cross. Lord, we want to suffer for you because we know that in suffering we become more like you, Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.